There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs. Saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk Good morning and welcome to the Go Radio Business Show with Sir Tom Hunter and Lord Willie Hockey. I'm Donald Martin, editor of The Herald and Herald on Sunday, and your host as we discuss the latest headlines and share brilliant and free advice from the boardroom. We're also joined this morning by Scott McCulloch, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of The Vegan Kind. Don't forget, if you ever miss an episode, simply search for The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey on your favourite podcast channel. And if you have a question for Tom and Willie, please email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. So gentlemen, new research has revealed the days of lunching in a restaurant are long gone. Seven in ten workers wouldn't dream of being away from their desk and emails for an hour. Are business lunches still productive in a new world of Zoom and Teams calls? Tom? <laughs> well, that's a good question. So when I'm in Scotland, I, I never really do any business lunches as such. But I still do them when I'm in London and I still find them productive. I still find them a way of getting to know people. Yeah, so I think they are they are still applicable for what I'm trying to do, which is get to know new people, trying to find, you know, whether this entrepreneur's worth backing, whether this financier's worth their salt, etc. So yeah, I I still do it, but not as much as as I used to, that's for sure. What about you, Willie? I think there is still a place for B2B business lunches. You know, if you're out there trying to do business with clients, but I think your staff or the colleagues going out for a business lunch, no, I don't see that happening. I see a lot of, it's funny, we have a, a restaurant in our building in the headquarters where we subsidise all the food and I'm amazed to see all the young people going out to the burger van and going to, I don't know if that says anything about the food that's in the canteen or whatever but no the people still like they, they like brands so they like to go to the you know they would get their coffee or they get their sandwiches whatever but uh, I still think there's a place I actually had a business lunch yesterday uh, and I could certainly do without a few but uh, no I think there'll still be a place for business to business lunches but in the city centre now where colleagues would go out and I think a lot of people as well now don't get an hour for a lunch so we only have in half an hour that kind of restriction for going anywhere to eat. Funny that you say that because a fifth of staff don't take a lunch break because they fear the boss will think they're skiving. Should we insist on staff taking decent breaks or is it up to the individual? Tom? Well, I mean, I, I can only speak from our own experience here. We've always had a head office in the middle of nowhere, so there's nowhere for them to go for, for lunch, so they've got to stay at their desk. But um, no, I think if you're running a business now and people are frightened of the boss in that way, that that is 1980s. That's not. Yeah. That's not today. No, no one, no one's frightened of the no. boss thinking that you're skiving if because you took your lunch. <laughs> I would certainly encourage everyone you know who works for us to take their breaks. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, another report that I was reading says that internet speeds show that only four European cities—Copenhagen, Stockholm, Bern, and Budapest has median download speeds faster than the US. London is only achieving speeds half that of the US. 
So from a business perspective, how do you rate the internet speed in Scotland and the UK, Tom? Yeah, it's now become, um, there's this thing called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, <laughs> which is what you need for a happy life. And I'm telling you, internet speed is now up in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, it was interesting because we do this big um, housing development through in Edinburgh. And I was learning about what's the top of people's lists for buying a house. So it's, you know, is it a good school for the kids, commuting distance? But internet speeds, Willie. Yep. Fast broadband is now right up there. Now, if you're a business, I believe every business now is a tech business as well. And I think internet speeds is absolutely fundamental to almost every business I can think of. If our speed is holding us back, we got to fix it. Willie, how important is it for the economy and growth? Well, I think that what the last two years would show you, well, people were working from home. It's very, very important. We couldn't have got through. We couldn't have survived the last two years if overall the, the, the broadband speed was, was acceptable. But I think it could be better. I think there's a whole question mark now about you know, the holding back on the 5G. You know, there's, there's, you know that, that would certainly help. But as Tom says... It's absolutely crucial now, especially for your business. But even now where you're getting so much remote working now, it's actually really, really important where the staff live, that they have a very good internet access and the, the, the speed. And I know for a fact, you now living up in a farm, I had to spend a fortune to make sure that we had good internet speed. And I'm actually just upgrading it again. So I would say that, like Tom, it's absolutely vital. Well, the Scottish and UK governments are both committed to rolling out 5G, as you mentioned, Willie, but are we really going fast enough? I don't think so. No, we, we should have been having this conversation two or three years ago. You know, the whole problem with China and the people who were paying for the infrastructure, all of that. And I think what, you know, all the intelligence experts tell us that we have to be in charge of our own destiny here. So it may take a wee bit longer. I think that is really, really vital. Know that another sovereign nation doesn't have the power that we've seen over energy that, that Russia has. So certainly we don't want China or anyone else having that power over our internet, which will be vital for the operation of our country. I think Willie makes a good point. I think if the pandemic had hit us, say, 10 years ago, Donald, we wouldn't have been able to cope. My own business, people work from home and we never really missed a beat. Um, so it was good enough for that. But I think, Willie, if it had been 10 years ago and trying to work from home and that communication wasn't there, we'd have been in a terrible state, yeah. actually. We could not, a lot of companies would not have survived. No, no. And mine's may have been one of them because, you know, that we were so fortunate that you can take 700 people out of your head office, send them home, and you don't miss a beat. You're right. You could not have done it 10 years ago. Yeah. High profile investors Mark Mobius and Larry Fink are arguing with each other over whether the war in Ukraine will put an end to globalization as we move to increase self sufficiency. Whose side are you on in that debate? Tom. Yeah, well, it's it's been incredible once you begin to peel back what's happening in global supply chains, Donald. And unfortunately, it's taken a war to look and see how much wheat comes out of Ukraine and Russia, how much gas and oil comes out of Russia and how we're interdependent in the world, Willie. And, you know, 42% of Germany's gas was coming from 
Russia. You know, about a third of the world's um, wheat was coming out of Ukraine and Russia. And why does that matter? Well, if you look at the world prices of um, chicken, for example, you'd, you'd say, why is the price of chicken doubling? Well, it's because the stable food of rearing a chicken is wheat. Wheat prices have gone up through the roof, and therefore chicken prices have gone up through the roof. So we we live in this interdependent world, which many of us didn't really appreciate before. So are we all, all now going to retreat into our own little island and make it in splendid isolation? I hope not. I hope not, because that's what gives the world a competitive advantage. But we have got to be able to get on in the world. And therefore, when a, a rogue nation, and I'm going to call it out, a rogue nation like Russia decides to take military action over a neighbour, the world's got to stand up to that. To answer your question, the war in Ukraine will not be the end to globalisation. But what I think it's going to do is going to get people to think. It's certainly got me thinking. And I definitely now would be interested in having a debate with anyone now about how we produce our own utilities, even how we maybe even nationalise our, our facilities. So, you know, energy and water that you want to be completely charged of that supply to your people. And I think that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has made a lot of people think. It's certainly made a lot of people think in Germany. It's made a lot of people think in France. So I think if the war in Ukraine does anything, it's going to change how we think about how other people can control or have a major effect on our country without going to war with us, like them turning off the, the, the gas supply like Russia. Tom, I believe you've got a great initiative to try and help Ukraine. Yeah, well, I mean, we've been struggling to try and say how on earth could we help um, what's going on over there. We watch it in the news and, you know, it's just it's kind of unbelievable. So we have hooked up with the, the Ukrainian ambassador and we're doing an event in London next week at the Tate Modern trying to keep the plight of the Ukrainian people in the media because, you know, they're a bit worried, Donald, that people will see it and then it becomes kind of old news. But it's actually getting worse for the people of Ukraine. It's not getting better. So, yes, um, we're delighted to help the Ukrainian ambassador. We're going to have President Zelensky joining by, by video. We're delighted to be able to help in our own small way there. That's a fantastic initiative, you know, and, and I think we should be doing more. You know, last week I was involved with um, with Mags McPherson, who's helped with the Dnipro kids, you know, the stuff through Hibernian FC, which are fantastic. So we gave them a wee bit of help this week. This week also I've been speaking to Derek Proven about maybe doing something at the airport. Uh, Derek's got a centre there, we maybe try to get it livable so that we could bring some people in, we could use it as a wee assessment centre, then move, move them on. But I think the one thing that Scotland could do is obviously we play them in the World Cup qualifier. And I think that certainly people should be looking at I don't know how anybody representing Ukraine at the moment could have their mind completely on the job. So I, I definitely think that FIFA should look at, you know, there should be a buy for Ukraine to get to the finals and we should work out some way who we play. Brilliant but, idea, Willie. I mean, how, how on earth can MD concentrate on a game of football? Mm -hmm. But I know they're proud people and they wouldn't want any, you know, charity like that. But goodness, this is exceptional circumstances. They should be getting into the World Cup 
and hopefully by the time the World Cup comes, hopefully, then things will have settled down in the country and it's rebuilding. I mean, goodness me. We've talked a lot about escalating costs, but price surges back in the 19th and 20th century sparked the use of new technologies and changes to government policies. Is there a case for optimism? Well, there's always a case for optimism, Donald, or else you would just not get out from under your duvet in the morning. So out of adversity, there's always innovations. People look, here's a challenge, how do we solve it? And that's why we are so positive about entrepreneurs, about business people, people like Elon Musk who think differently to everybody else because we look at the world's problems today and sometimes you think, my goodness, how are we going to overcome it? But we always do. And we always do because the power of the human brain to overcome any challenges that faces is still there. So I am still an optimist. Willie? Well, I'm certainly an optimist. After listening to President Macron's acceptance speech, and Tom must have been jumping up and down with joy, he used the word entrepreneur and entrepreneurism 37 times. Wow. Right, and people are telling me that his whole argument to the people of France was all about how he was going to help the country progress through entrepreneurism. So for that, everyone, so we've been talking about it, we've been talking about it with Kate Forbes, Kate Forbes has been using it. For the first time, I'm sure Tom had a big, big saying is that they want a minister for entrepreneurism. It's fantastic that this is, that you know, to, to defeat a right-wing candidate on the basis of we're going to make things better through hard work for the people of the country. Wow, I, I just wish that we, we'd follow suit. To help entrepreneurs, is there any piece of legislation or bureaucracy that you would want to just scrap immediately? There's, there's not one piece that comes to mind, Donald, but this is about, first of all, governments, civil servants, civil society in Scotland, understanding the role of the entrepreneur, understanding the role of the disruptor to find a better way of doing things. You know, coming out of COVID and our foundation, we backed a lot of social entrepreneurs who found a better way to help the folks who need it most. And my big thing with the government now is let's not go back to the way it was because the system was there almost feeding this, its, its own system and we lost track of the people who need the help and therefore disruptive forces as a positive change in the world. I'm all for that. Really? I'm going to have a wee bit of poetic license here and say, okay, the question is about, you know, entrepreneur... I would love to change one thing, one thing. I would love the government to accept that all meaningful apprenticeships can be tax deductible until that kid's time is out. And I think that would help. And I think we're going to need it. So if, let's call that being entrepreneurial. But for me, if I could change one thing, you know, through being part of the House of Lords or whatever in government, I would love it that any company that commits to starting young people on a meaningful apprenticeship, I think that they should be able to, tax, be able to put that against tax. That sounds a brilliant idea. Let's start a movement, Willie. Yep. It wouldn't cost me a lot of money. Getting any support when you're down well, there in Westminster? To be honest, I haven't started the debate yet. I've run it by a couple of people, but we've mentioned it in weeks 
past, you know, that um, things are going to get tough in the very few months. So to keep optimistic, where are these things? You know, in the past, we've had the slave labour of the YTS and all these, you no know, youth schemes. Why not listen to business, right? And when I mean when I mean meaningful apprenticeships, I mean that you're serving your time. It could be in a trade, it could be in a job, but what it means is being an apprentice is, is that you don't get a lot of money for the first four years, but you've absolutely got a quantum in year four once your time is out. That's a meaningful apprenticeship to me. Toyota, the world's largest car maker, warned UK Transport Secretary Grant Shapps that it may axe manufacturing in Britain unless the government waters down a mandate for a rapid switch to pure electric vehicles. Tom, are we pushing industry too hard? Yeah, well, this is a good question, Donald, and it all comes back to balance once again. We all believe in a greener future. I think everybody agrees on it now. I don't think there's any naysayers left. I think the climate debate has been won from the point of view of saying, yes, we need to be greener. Then, of course, the devil's in the detail. And um, if governments come out and don't listen to business about how rapid that transition can be, then that would be a bad thing. You can't really have politicians dictating to business, you will do this by then, because then there'll be there'll be bad consequences as well. So are we in this together? Absolutely. Should governments be listening to business? Absolutely. Um, sometimes governments need to push a little bit harder, but if it's an unrealistic mandate, and Toyota certainly know what they're doing about manufacturing cars, and they're saying, well, if you push us this quickly, we will cut our manufacturing, then somebody should be listening to that, Donald. Willie, what's your view? Yeah, I definitely think they've been pushed too hard. We all went, we all want a cleaner climate. We all want to get to neutral as soon as we can. Um, I think that Toyota would tell you tomorrow that if the government made it law tomorrow that every car coming out had to be electric vehicles, they couldn't because the equipment, the materials is not there. So I think, yes, we should be on a path to get to carbon neutral across everything we do, but we have to be realistic about the time and the money it's going to take to get there. And I think that if we have a, you know, grown-up conversation about this, that we will find a solution that would fit most of the big, big manufacturers. And I don't think they've been unrealistic in this. Okay. There's a growing rebellion against plans to privatise Channel 4. In fact, the Culture Committee Chair Julian Knight said the sell-off is revenge for unfriendly political coverage. So is it the right move from a business perspective or is it political opportunity, Willie? Um, <laughs> it's definitely a, it's a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. It was a wee bit, but, sorry. But, yes. yeah. but I think, to be fair, Channel 4 have not done themselves any favours over the year. You know, they've probably been responsible for some of the worst programmes ever made. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. seriously. Um, but yes, there's, there's no doubt that this is a political decision, but it could be an opportunity. You know, the, the government have to be careful for what they do, you know, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with Channel 4 and the ownership. Tom, any views? Yeah, so, I mean, the government's um, stated point of view is that public ownership is holding Channel 4 back. <laughs> I think that was Nadine Doris who said that, which um, anything Nadine says is um, 
all right with me. <laughs> I'm going to be real controversial. Really? I think the government are putting a toe in the water to see what they might do with the BBC in years to come. <laughs> you heard it here but, first. Yeah. But, but, you know, we, we do live in this ever-changing media landscape. Netflix come out and $40 billion was wiped off its market cap in one morning, Willie. Yeah. $40 billion yeah. um, because... They were growing their subscribers. They, they added 37 million subscribers during COVID, yeah. but they reckon they're going to lose 2 million of them in the next quarter. So 40 billion wiped off. Yeah. But on that, Tom, sorry, the point of that is when you're spot on is even adding the subscribers that they've picked up during COVID for the first time, the reason why the 40 billion wiped off for the first time, including that, the subscription numbers for one year are down. Yes, and the share price is down 60% from its all-time high. Wow. This is the but. So how do other media outlets compete? I would normally say um, media outlets should not be in public ownership. I don't think that's very healthy at all. But it's definitely the government have taken the hump, Channel 4. They criticised Nadine too much, so she says, out the door. So I think it's probably right. Sell, sell, sell. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to Scott McCullough, Chief Executive and Co-Founder of The Vegan Kind. Don't forget, if you want to join the boardroom, you can put your questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Helping your business digitise its documents. Go Radio. There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently document management, printing, IT support, digitization, data security, and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs, saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as in the latest of our brilliant series on Great Scots, we tell the story of Dame Anne Glogue and Sir Brian Soot. In 1976, Anne Glogue used her father's redundancy money to set up a small recreational vehicle and minibus business called Trotter in her hometown of Perth. In 1980, her younger brother Brian Souter, an accountant, joined the firm and they expanded the business into bus hire. Now known as Stagecoach, the company offered a very personal service, with Brian doing the driving and Anne making sandwiches and snacks for the passengers. Having originally run just a single route between Dundee and London, Anne and Brian began to expand the business into other parts of the UK successfully competing against the likes of National Express and CityLink. The company's early success meant that with the deregulation of the national bus groups in 1985, Anne and Brian were able to purchase other UK bus companies. By 1989, Stagecoach had become the first UK transport group to expand overseas, beginning in Africa, then Asia, mainland Europe, North America and Oceania. In 1993, Anne and Brian floated their company on the London stock market. Just 13 years after Stagecoach had first hit the road, the company was valued at £134 million. But there was more to come. In the mid-90s, following the privatisation of British Rail, Stagecoach launched the UK's first privatised train service, Southwest Trains, the UK's largest rail franchise. 
They later added East Midlands Train and the East Coast Main Line to their rail portfolio and had a 49% stake in Sir Richard Branson's Virgin Rail Group. Brian and Anne launched their no-frills intercity megabus service in 2003, which has since expanded to Europe and the United States. Today, Anne and Brian are worth a combined £730 million, and Anne is believed to be Scotland's richest woman. Brian received a knighthood in the 2011 Birth the Honours list, and Anne became Dame Anne in 2019. Stagecoach has never stopped growing. It currently has 24,000 employees and a fleet of 8,300 buses, coaches and trams that carry 3 million passengers a day, with an annual revenue of £2 billion. The entrepreneurial spirit of Dayman Glogue and Sir Brian Suter has meant their own personal journey may have had humble beginnings, but it has taken them to the very heights of success. What a phenomenal success story, Tom. So... Aaron Bryan's story is is was a great inspiration to me when I was um starting and growing my business. Um, you know, to start off from nothing, you know, Brian doing the driving and making the sandwiches. Well, it's it I mean, it's unbelievable. Then they kept innovating, they kept bringing on new ideas, and um as importantly for me, is they've both got huge philanthropic ambitions once they made their fortune. Anne especially is a complete powerhouse and um, she might only be five foot nothing or stocking souls, Willie, but I wouldn't like to go to her with a bus pay packet. Anyone listening to the show this morning and hearing that here's a young woman who buys a minibus, a second-hand minibus and starts a wee business in Perth and ends her and her brother end up growing into one of the largest transport companies in the world is, is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And as Tom says, behind that, you've got two people here, or two of the nicest people you could ever meet, and they try so hard to give so much back. But the thing that always impressed me about Anne, and I used to admire her, was that she wasn't just happy giving money to help, especially in Africa. She was there. She was there in operating theatres, building hospitals, helping sick kids. And I admired that because while I was working hard, I could never have thought that I could have found the time to do that. But to to, to give you a a wee glimpse into how she thinks, when it comes to her charity stuff, she absolutely tries to get the best value that she can. And I got a call from her one day when she was trying to take all these supplies to Africa and she was at Glasgow Airport and they were trying to charger for extra baggage when she was taking 17 boxes of medical equipment with her that she had in a trolley and she phoned me and says Willie you must know somebody here in this airport that you can phone they're not charging me for these boxes it's to save kids lives so it's, it's been a pleasure knowing Anne and Brian over the years and the things that I've learned just from listening to them has been absolutely amazing and, and they, they are absolute role models for anybody that's trying to start a business today that don't think that you can start small and grow huge. An inspiration indeed. We're now joined by Scott McCulloch, Chief Executive of The Vegan Kind. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you. Delighted to have you with us and you've built a very successful business selling vegan products. But tell us about your business journey and how you first got into that market. Sure. So, I mean, I guess taking it way back, um, I'd actually been working as a business manager at RBS, um, which was an absolutely phenomenal grounding in life. Um, You know, I spent about eight to 10 years with a portfolio of, you know, between 400 and 800 different businesses in Glasgow. So 
At one point, I was based in Charing Cross. At one point, I was based in Giffnick. I was based in Byers Road. I was based in Paisley at one point. Um, and I was, you know, saw between three and five different businesses every single day, either in the branch or in their premises over a 10-year period. So that's kind of really where my business began because um, I became very well exposed to everybody from whether a sole trader, hairdresser to, you know, 100-employee uh, plumber firm or, you know, everything in between. Also, businesses that do really, really well and you, you have them in your portfolio for a while or businesses that sound absolutely fantastic on paper and they're gone in six months so I felt acutely aware of what it was meant to be in business I always remember I used to sit at my desk sort of just wondering at what point I would be doing something because I, I sort of had my eyes wide open to the opportunities that were out there in life and sometimes used to feel if I was sitting at my desk and you, you maybe didn't really have something to do so much I'd be sitting twiddling my thumbs I'm like this can't be for the rest of my life I'm just sitting on someone else's time and when there's nothing to do I'm just kind of wondering when the next thing will be doing so I always have my eyes open but um, Karis my wife uh, she was a project manager at Santander and um, she'd also grown her own sort of little YouTube following um, back in 2013 so she had like 20,000 followers on YouTube I sort of felt I had the kind of like business acumen um, and, and I'd been a meat eater my whole life Karis had been a vegetarian her whole life and then uh, yeah one night in our flat in the Gallagate in Glasgow um, Karis had, you know, she decided to go vegan a couple of weeks before, and then one night in her flat, she sort of said, "You know what? It'd be amazing. You know, I, I get that beauty box subscription every month from from Glossy Box. There isn't a vegan one." And I remember going, "Is, is there not?" Quickly checked the UK, and I was like, I, I, "You're right. There isn't one in the UK. I wonder if there's one in America." And I googled America, and there was one in America that had been in existence for two years. I was like, "Right, okay." So I checked the UK again. I was like, "There's definitely not one in the UK." And just from that night forward, like that was the beginning of it. We knew that there was, you know, an opportunity there for us, and we just knew that we had the skill set between us. We knew we had the sort of audience, I guess, from Caris' YouTube page to get it off the ground. And um, that night, we registered the Vegan Kind Limited before we really knew exactly what it could become. And and when did you sit? Because it's amazing with you and your wife both in secure jobs. Yeah. When did you just go? We're chucking that, yeah, and we're all in. Yeah, so I moved on from RBF to WorldPay, and I was a, I became a regional director there. Where I had fifteen staff under me, salespeople in Northern England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and I used to actively say to them, "Guys, you should really, really have a side hustle here because, see, be honest, it was a fantastic job when you were a salesperson there. If you were good at hitting your sales target, you were left alone. Really, you just had a big punchy number to hit each month, and if you hit it." Nobody really bothered you. It was all about hitting that number. If you didn't hit the number, you probably didn't have a job. <laughs> but if you did hit the number, you actually had a lot of spare time. And the early days of the vegan kind were, were born a lot upon me being good as a salesperson and always, always hitting my target, but also finding I had a lot of free time. So in between appointments or when I was in a cafe or whatever, I was able to work on the vegan kind permanently. <laughs> so Karis and I were both like that. We both sort of like were able to sort of I guess, make time to grow this kind of side hustle. And then basically about 18 months after we'd sort of launched the business, it got to the point where we'd taken on a 1,000 square foot warehouse. And um, yeah, we were like, somebody actually needs to, to, to be there more full time. We sort of decided that um, Karis would be best coming out of her job first. She would go in full time. And then in 2016, um, to be honest, the business had actually kind of probably started plateauing at that point. Caris was in it full time. We had a few full time employees. I was staying away a few nights a week, focusing on world pay. And uh, we just had our second child. I think it was <laughs> a lot going on. A lot going on. But actually, when when you looked at everything, the vegan kind had kind of stopped growing. And the reason it had stopped growing was because Caris was you know, home with, with two kids quite a lot. Because I was staying away, focusing on world pay quite a lot. 
mass salary was the sort of linchpin to how we could actually still financially hold everything together. But the but the vegan kind, the one thing that you know conjoined it all was was almost like starting to suffer in a way. And that that was because all it was at that point in time was a subscription box. It was a monthly subscription box operating model. It was doing recurring revenue. It had grown exponentially really over over that three year period. But it had reached a point where it, it kind of started to plateau, and we, we weren't seeing the, the sort of growth that we'd been used to. So when we looked at it, and we we're like, "What's the actual problem here?" And we're like, "We need to diversify. It needs to become more than it is right now. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is." if we're both in it full-time together and then we were like, all right, I'm going to have to quit my job at WorldPay. So that, you basically let your wife take the risk. That's what you're saying, Scott, initially. Well, <laughs> in, in a way, we sort of mutually agreed. Um, mutually agreed, okay. Yeah. Was yeah. there a few sleepless nights when you decided to be all in when you quit your own job? 100%, because like yeah. at, at the time, you know, we... we the, the business did not have the ability to, to, to pay me or, or give us the same sort of uh, you know income that, that, that WorldPay was given um, uh, you know when I told my told my boss at the time and hopefully he doesn't ever hear this or mind but when I, when I said to him I said look you know I'm looking to quit and he's like why why you know everybody knows about the vegan kind we're all just delighted for you we know you do that on the side and you know your team are smashing your target you know why why would you do that and I was like because the vegan kind I, I, I don't have any I, I'm not sort of like um, full in on anything at the moment. I'm giving half my time to world pay. I'm only half there for my wife and kids because I'm staying away three nights a week. And I'm, and I'm really only half there for my team at WorldPay either. So I'm just in the middle of it all and I don't really feel satisfied anymore. I just feel like I'm not giving 100% to anything and I just, I can't take it anymore. So I, I hope it's not the worst decision I've ever made in my life. But Karis and I mutually agreed that the vegan kind is worth us doing this and we're going to give it absolutely everything. And that, that was when we were like, well, what else could we become? And when we started like, sort of researching all of the um, keyword traffic to do with veganism, and a lot of the products that people were searching for, such as like plant-based bacon, vegan cheese, plant-based burgers, we would have never had those products because we were like a, just a monthly ambient subscription box. Um, so, so Scott, can I just ask you, one of the questions we get asked quite a lot is when somebody's in a secure job and when's the right time to jump, do you think you can be a part-time entrepreneur? Um, well, it's an interesting one because I guess in some respects, I, I, you know, entrepreneurialism in many respects is the ability to focus on several enterprises at once. And at the moment, I'm kind of like not really doing I'm just focusing on the vegan kind. It's bloody hard enough. So I admire people that end up having fingers in every pie and I often look at them and go, how the hell have you got like six businesses under you at the moment? So, so in a respect, I guess you should be able to be entrepreneurial part-time because you're only part-time in any one of those things. But in terms of, from our perspective, like actually having an employed part of your life whilst trying to grow an entrepreneurial side hustle, it can only go so far. But I, but I do advocate what we did in terms of have your firm and employment have your stable income that you need but build something on the side because we've all got you know nobody nobody wants to do it or often but you know between five and seven in the morning it's a couple of hours you know between 10 and midnight there's a couple of hours there there's four hours a day at the weekend generally you're free if you want to work on it if you find something you're really really passionate about then you, there is more than enough time in the week to actually get something off the ground you may well have a roadblock like we did though where you think do you know what it's, it's time to you know go in full on it Scott when you decided to, to take this leap of faith and, and go all in was did you find that there was help there for budding entrepreneurs you know some of the you know the entrepreneurial spark the edge uh, you know scale up did you get involved in any of these? Yeah, so the business had been through eSpark in year one and two, which was great and gives a sort of strong foundation at the beginning. Um, and then in 2017, just six months after I'd came out of uh, WorldPay, uh, we applied to go into Scottish Edge. Um, it was the final chance that we'd been able to enter into Edge because uh, we were in year five of our trading. 
Um, and yeah, so Karis and I basically rehearsed and rehearsed and prepared and, um, you know, uh, on... How much did you get, Scott? Uh, so we won the, the, the second highest prize of £75,000. Great. So, um, yeah, which was like a, a huge catalyst for us at that point in time. We hadn't actually had any funding. We just sort of self-funded everything ourselves, I suppose. Right. Um, so it really helped. Massively helped, you know. If I hadn't been for that, you know, and I, and I still sort of like try and support any Scottish Edge businesses that are coming through now. Like I had one in our warehouse a couple of weeks ago that was a recent winner. They, they looked back on the prior winners and sort of picked us for someone that they could speak to. So they no, came the through. Whole, and that's what it's all about. Yeah. The whole ethos in Edge is if if we've helped you, if you can help the next people and the next rung of the ladder. So it it really it really does work. And it's, I'm delighted to hear you tell that story. Yeah, everybody who entered East Park, are we back to start, both at Tom's and my own, that we said to the people, we always says, no, what can we do for you? Yeah. So no, you can't do it for us, but what you can do is just remember this. And in the future, when someone comes to you for help, see if you can help them. Just so it's fantastic it to hear a story of, yeah. of how that actually works. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th I think it's, it's very true because, I mean, me being in business bank for 10 years at RBS, you know, when when somebody would come in, and, and don't get me wrong, it's obviously a great scheme, but um, Business Gateway is very, very different from, from eSpark. You know, there's less of an entrepreneurial edge to, to the Business Gateway. So having access to eSpark and Scottish Edge and just that whole kind of startup incubator community, I'd never known anything like it, you know, when I was yeah. a business manager. And then, and getting to be part of it, you know, as a business owner was, was really good. Right. Scott, tell us, what's the scale of the business now? Yeah, so we did 7.4 million in revenue last year. Wow, um, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yep, yeah, we've got about 50 employees at the moment. Um, Amazing. And um, and yes, we operate from a 35,000 square foot warehouse um, just along the road, actually, uh -huh. in, in Rutherglen, which we moved to in October 2020. Because obviously we were a next day delivery food and drink business. So when COVID happened, we just like exploded overnight. We were just being <laughs> stripped bare of every item in the entire building. Uh, and then we'd have to take a full day to replenish stock and then turn the website back on with full stock and it would just be cleared again. And that just happened consistently for about two wow. months. Um, it just wasn't big enough for the sort of explosive trade that we were going through. So we made the quite difficult decision to move warehouse with a full team of people in the middle of a pandemic, which, let me tell you, I do not want to have to go through it ever again. It was extremely stressful, but um, it allowed us to be in that sort of space three times the size, which allowed us to do considerable amounts more revenue, which is what then led us on to do the numbers, which allowed us to do our Series A raise last year. Fantastic. This is great because you are the perfect blueprint for what me and Tom always hoped for when we got involved with eSpark and the Edge, you know, if... if, if if a third of the businesses follow the path that you've done, we'd absolutely delighted. So I've short, yep. such a short period of time to be employing 50 people, moving into new premises, building your business up, 7.4. I don't think I was at 7.4 turnover when I was 10 years in business. <laughs> so well done. That's a big congratulations. So Scott, how do you keep in touch with the next trend that's coming? So actually, we're, we're, we're pretty fortunate. So we're the, I'd say we're the largest 100% plant-based retailer in, in certainly the UK, right. probably Europe, um, wow. uh, you know, uh, if not the world. There's a couple of, you know, new businesses that have started in the last few years, but we're really, really well known. And I think because we've came from that kind of grassroots environment and it's still quite a sort of buoyant market, there's a lot of innovation happening within plant-based food, a lot of people trying to recreate things. Like there's always try to, somebody trying to figure out, you know, for example, like foie gras, you must be able to veganise that. Like what exactly does it taste like? <laughs> you know, anything at all that contains animal products, people are always trying to think about how you can create it or if there is one that's already in existence 
ingredients and somebody would taste it and say, oh, it's not quite up to par. Go, well, what can I tweak? They just get it a wee bit better. <laughs> so like there's always innovation happening and you know, we, we're one of the first places that places will go to. You know, they want to get come. samples to us. So, so, so you're seen now as the route to market for all this innovation? For a lot of them, yeah. We're actually doing a, 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 an event at the moment or in about a few weeks' time called um, Supporting the Small. And that's as we've basically, our, our commercial director, Ali, she's, she's sort of gone out to um, the sort of grassroots guys that maybe we, we used to stock more often back in the day, but the bigger we've got, a lot of those smaller guys, we see less often or they, they, they struggle to get to the top of our pile. So we've decided to just go right back in and go find who are all the really small guys that are doing a lot of innovation that we can support. And we've created this, this range of 12 artisanal brands that we're going to showcase on the website and do a bit of a sort of meet the team, meet the founders, find out about who they are, what they do. So, so yeah, we're getting sort of, you know, the big guys, all the big sort of conglomerates that are coming into plant-based space with all this new innovation as well. But we're trying to keep an ear to the ground as well with all the small guys. Well, as people's budgets get tight, do you see it becoming harder to persuade people to pay more for vegan products? Or is that just a myth? It's, it's par- it is partially true. I mean, because in some respects, you might see um, if somebody tries to innovate something, you know, and, and, and they're the first to market with it, and they've had a lot of costs going into it, maybe they're going to launch a specific product um, that, 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 that costs more than its meat-based counterpart, perhaps. But in the main, I would say that in general, you can pick up a, a, a budget priced burger and an expensive burger and also a lot of plant-based food um is, is just very is good cooking so organic materials and you know knowing how to use use the products in the kitchen um but in terms of us as a business we index like a lot of our top say i mean we'll stop five thousand products but we index like the top say 200 in, in all categories to make sure that we're within say five percent of all of the main grocers so we've got like a kind of team now that are ensuring that we're not sort of priced out by the growth of it elsewhere because that is you know I guess an, an obvious step for us as a business is making sure that we, we do stay relevant and that our prices are attractive when the plant-based areas of the supermarkets are growing So why don't you give yourself a plug anyone listening this morning how can they get in touch how can they buy the boxes from you how do they do that? Yeah, so the website is uh, theveganking.com. Uh, when you go there, you basically see it's, it's kind of two businesses in one, really. You've got our subscription boxes, um, which is a, a surprise box that arrives at your door every single month. It's got between seven or eight products in it, um, usually food, drink, household toiletries. People say it's like having a birthday every month, and it really <laughs> works on the element of surprise. So it's a product discovery box, and it just helps people go vegan, just makes them aware that it's actually not that mystical, and that a lot of the products that they probably recognise in the shelf for a lot of the brands that they already know of may well already be vegan, and, and they can just um, pick those up. Um, and then the other side of the business is the Vegan Kind Supermarket, which is essentially... Uh, the same as you know an online Tesco really but it's got all the same departments and you know may well look and feel the same when you're going through a shopping experience but every single product on our website is entirely free from animal products um, Have you thought uh, uh, someone like me right, who couldn't be tempted into this sort of stuff have you thought of any marketing that you would have a <laughs> banquet one night and invite a load of people and say well, don't tell them what they're getting A vegan tatty scone for a Yeah, yeah, yeah Well, yeah, so, so yeah. there you go tatty scone is already vegan so oh, you're, you're, yeah. in, you're in yeah. You're in, yeah. you're in. Um, well, you can burn them Yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, we actually had I had a, my son's um, sixth birthday party the weekend and we had family over and um, there's a the leading plant-based uh, meat brand in one of the European countries that I'd never ever had before or tasted it's coming to the UK and we'll be the exclusive distributor of that and when I received the products I was like oh my god and I've tried so many different meat replacements I was like that is without doubt the best burger best sausage and best chicken I have ever ever had <laughs> so I got them to ship me tons of it um, and as I say I had family over on Saturday and we must 
served about maybe 40 or 50 burgers and absolutely everybody was like you literally just wouldn't know the difference and I think that's to me where the whole kind of plant-based movement comes from it's like you know if you're handed burger A and it tastes the exact same as burger B and in a blind taste test you, you literally couldn't tell the difference you wouldn't turn around to someone and go no no I specifically wanted you to kill an animal can you go and do that for me <laughs> if it tasted the same you'd probably be satisfied yeah. you know from a taste perspective yeah. like, I, I can see why you're reason. successful he's a good salesman really. <laughs> yeah. he's a good salesman yeah. so you're not tempted then Willie yeah. Well, no, if someone Definitely. wants to give me, don't explain to me what it a is, I'll testing. try it, right? <laughs> totally. I'll be in, yeah. Let's do a blind do tasting. Yeah. Now, now, who, we were talking in previous shows, and I was saying my hero's Elon Musk because he's disruptive and he just tears up the rule book. Who are your business heroes? Who do you get inspiration from? And, and maybe your wife as well. Absolutely, my wife, for sure. I mean, the, the, the thing is, like, the vegan kind, I, I always look at it that, you know, I had the, the business acumen, the business background, and, you know, I've been vegan for nine and a half years now. But um, I guess the, the the sort of core values of being vegan, if you take it back before it was about the planet or anything like that, you know, it really does come from compassion, really. And, and it was Caris that was a vegetarian her whole life and was on that more natural, altruistic path. And I very much look at myself as being fortunate that I got to join her on this because, like you say, it's, it, it's almost hard to imagine how you could ever make that transition. And I was that guy as well. Like, if I look back on, you know, 25-year-old me, absolutely no chance was I going vegan. I couldn't <laughs> even have imagined it. Whereas now I'm just, like, delighted with the path I found in life. I feel, like, happier doing it. And we've obviously, you know, spawned a great business out of it. But that's really, you know, from Caris and you know what we've got three three young kids as well so that that keeps us driven um i think from a from a um a business perspective um i know stephen bartlett's obviously making a lot of kind of headlines at the moment being on dragon's den and you know, he's achieved so so much at a young age and um you know i think that he's, he's really really on the pulse with obviously the social side of of growing any business and um yeah he's one to admire for sure wow. what's, what's caris's role in the business today so she's actually currently off on mat leave at right. the moment. Um, but she actually, we, we, we kind of act as a bit of a, in a kind of like co-CEO capacity. But title-wise, I'm yeah. CEO and then she's MD. Gareth takes a lot more to do the sort of HR and people side of things and customer services. And then more historically, my business uh, background's been in, in sales really through WorldPay. So I've taken a lot to do with that and then the e-com side of things. But you know, with any good business, like I've so far removed from so many of the tasks in the business now that there's <laughs> there's far better people doing uh, most of the jobs now and, and we're just there kind of overseeing it and managing it. Brilliant story, brilliant yeah, business. It's a great story. Thank, thank you, Scott. We look forward to our meat-free bacon rolls next Sunday. Yes. Coming up after the break, we go into the boardroom where Tom and Willie answer your questions and offer free business advice. You want to take part? Simply email your questions to gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. Helping your business with IT support, data security and more. Go Radio. There are lots of things a business needs to help it run efficiently. Document management, printing, IT support, digitisation, data security and more. As a true managed service provider, Workflow Solutions can help with these and a wide range of other business needs, saving time and money for businesses across the UK. Help your workflow with Workflow Solutions, the work from anywhere experts. Visit workflo-solutions.co.uk. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Welcome back as we go into the boardroom with Hunter and Hockey and answer your calls with free business advice, insight and inspiration. If you want your questions read out in the show or wish to speak directly to Tom and Willie, you can email gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk. Now, gentlemen, I've got a really interesting email question. 
I'll decide that, Donald. Okay. You know, I love this Come one. On. I love this one. The Bank of England <laughs> governor claimed £83 expenses for computer equipment while working from home, despite being paid 575000 It was work-related. So do you think criticism of him was fair? Do you want my honest opinion on this? Of I course. think <laughs> guys like Andrew Bailey, who are institutionalised, to be fair to them, stick to the letter of the law, right? So they don't claim for things that they're not allowed to claim for, but they will claim for every single thing that they are allowed to claim for, right? And I think that that's what you're finding here. I bet you that he's got someone, he's secretary or whatever, where he gives all the receipts, here's what you do, tell me about every penny you spend, and he'll put all that to that lady or that guy, whatever, and then they will put in his expenses. I don't think this is a case of... Andrew Bailey, and I'm not sticking up for him, right, because we've had a right go for the last few weeks. <laughs> but I, I see, to be honest with you, I think at the moment, that's at least it has worries. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, so, was it fair to claim 83 quid when you're paid so well? Yeah, so I don't think it's anything to do with what you're paid, Donald. If it's business related, and being the business owner, if one of my employees it takes on expense business related, the business should pay it regardless of, of what I pay them. So, yeah, I've got no problem with it. So you both think then the criticism that appeared in media was unfair? I think they should be concentrating on the fact <laughs> that he has called it completely wrong on inflation and interest rates over the past nine months. I'm not interested in his 84 quid. <laughs> Okay. Yes, so the media got it wrong, Donald. Yes. Well, that's, there's there's that's, a surprise. That's what eh? we're saying. <laughs> Very quick uh, question for you again. The legal requirement to wear a mask has now been removed. Many businesses will have key employees crucial to the business. Would you expect them to wear a mask on public transport and to continue to take extra steps to avoid COVID? Tom. So... I think I've spoke about it before. I am not for the government telling me how to live my life. Um, let's take the information and individuals make their own decisions. You know, this big brother telling me how to live my life, I hate it. And I think Scotland was particularly bad at trying to be big brother or big sister on this occasion. Um, and therefore, I think the people have just give give us the information. We'll make up our own minds. You wouldn't influence that as a boss that you're going to be flying all over the world on business, wear a mask. That's up to me and it's up to my individual employees. Willie? I hear that bank robbers have asked for an exemption. <laughs> they still want to continue to wear theirs. Uh, to answer your question, I think a lot of people will just think it's sensible. Uh, you know, in their minds to keep wearing a mask when they're in the public. So you see people on trains and, and, and buses, that's fine. And I don't have any problem with that at all. But I think the, the you know, for my own uh, self, I, I'm not wearing a mask anymore because I'm not told that I have to, but I'm not holding it against anybody who feels as if they still want to wear one. Good, sensible advice. But unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Don't forget, you can put your business questions to Tom and Willie by emailing gobusiness at thisisgo.co.uk and you can give us feedback or get involved by visiting thisisgo.co.uk. If you ever miss an episode, simply search for the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can subscribe. The Go Radio Business Show with Workflow Solutions. A true managed
service provider helping your business run effectively. Go.